Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean, these comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello there and welcome to Democracy Sausage, which comes to you twice weekly from the Australian National University's prestigious Crawford School of Public Policy, the School of Politics and International Relations, and the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. I'm Mark Kenny, and I'm joined in the studio by my regular co-discussant, political scientist, Dr Maria Teflaga. Hi there, Maria. Hello, everyone. And by one of the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery's most senior and finest journalists, Guy News Chief Anchor, Kieran Gilbert. G'day, Kieran. Good morning. And David Caldercott, who is uh, back again, an emergency consultant and senior lecturer in the School of Medicine here at ANU. G'day there, David. How you going? What a strange and disturbing year this has been. Through six or seven months of COVID-induced shutdowns, extraordinary work by our public health sector and major economic interventions, Australians had warmed to the whole idea of government. Not for us, the toxic suspicion of Canberra in the same way that a core strand of American independence renders that ailing society virtually ungovernable, as we're seeing. Australians unashamedly turned to their governments to coordinate uh, responses to the pandemic and saw state and federal governments mostly rise to the occasion with some missteps and, of course, a few mistakes along the way. Politics took a back seat to policy, trust soared as voters recognised the common threat and cheered the switch from politicking to problem-solving. But in recent months, that has started to ebb, and the old politics of marginal advantage, state and federal rivalry, has swept back. And with trust already waning, we've seen a spate of morale-sapping controversies with recent abuses of power such as the sports rorts and the Angus Taylor Sydney City Council affair, now added to with the Australia Post-Cartier Watch largesse and the shocking Leppington Triangle land deal in which taxpayers paid tens of millions of dollars above market value to a party donor for land for the future expansion of the Western Sydney Airport. And of course, there's the Gladys Berejiklian Daryl Maguire relationship also that hasn't helped things either. But Kieran, voters in New South Wales have not abandoned Berejiklian, it seems. Uh, in fact, they seem to be saying, yes, they acknowledge that it's done her some damage, some reputational damage, but they're sticking with her. Yeah, this is a really interesting scenario we've got here because you've got a, a controversy, a scandal of this nature erupting amid a pandemic where she's been the best leader, certainly of the state jurisdictions, no doubt the best, managing in my, you know, both the health and economic implications and doing it with um, with calm and um, a balanced message. This, however, is a slow burn. And what has been uncovered at ICAC has certainly shocked her colleagues and I believe at some point, um, maybe Christmas, maybe beyond that, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's around Christmas before 
the final ICAC um, judgment is handed down uh, early in the, the new year, she'll be told what they're thinking December 7. She's given a couple of months her counsel to respond. I wouldn't be surprised if she taps the mat around the Christmas time while she's still got the public popularity because, quite frankly, when you look at the detail, I don't see how it's how it's tenable, you know, into the certainly into the next election. I can't see that. Um, what, what do you think's the um, the the biggest sort of crime here? And I, and I use that term carefully. I'm not actually saying there's literally a crime here, but what do you think the biggest infraction of 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 trust or the political code is here? Is it is it that she had the relationship, or is it that she didn't declare the relationship? Oh, look, to be honest, that that's that's that, that might be part of it. But for me, fundamentally, Mike Baird, when he was premier, made the ministerial code of conduct ICACable, as they call it. You know, it could go to ICAC. Mm-hmm. One of the elements of that ministerial code is if you have any information or fear of corruption, not, not no evidence, but fear of misuse of office, you have to report it. 2018, her office said to staff members at Parliament in New South Wales, if you have any information, go to ICAC. And then you've got phone taps of her saying, look, I don't need to hear that bit. Mm. You've got phone taps of Maguire telling her about his business deals being done out of his office on Macquarie Street. Oh, I mean, I think it's given the move. This is a lower bar we're talking about here. It's the Ministerial Code of Conduct, and it is being measured, um, you know, being scrutinised by ICAC. ICAC spent a day with the Premier in in the chair. I don't believe they would have done that unless they thought there was something to to scrutinise, and I think that that fundamentally is going to be the thing that will see her leave office before the next election. And yet voters seem to be saying that they have taken all of these things on board. I mean, they've, there's been plenty of reporting of all of this, right? Uh, they've seen her sitting in the witness stand. They've heard her voice caught on phone taps, which is an extraordinary moment in Australian politics, let alone just in, in New South Wales. Um, and yet she's still got quite high support. I think the the uh, Ipsos poll reported in the Sydney Morning Herald today has it at somewhere near 64%. Yeah. Now, that a lot of that is based on, as you say, the performance of the state government during uh, this pandemic, particularly relative to, say, Victoria and, mm-hmm. and, and to what's gone on in the rest of the world. Uh, but a lot of it's also due to a – a strong sense of her integrity, mm. and this yeah. is dented. Well, got, People are sort of simultaneously massively. saying, "Yes, I, I think her reputation's have, had a hit, but I'm still sticking with her." Now, doesn't that make? Doesn't that mean that she's already kind of weathered the damage? No. Won't, won't I, some I, of her I, colleagues look at that and say, "Well, she's she's had a hit, but voters are still sticking with her, and over time they'll they'll move past this." Oh, I can't see that, to be honest. Um, in, you know, as I said, her colleagues have have made their own judgment on her behaviour, you know, privately. I would think, I mean, how how could she enforce discipline on a on a minister who's been seen to encroach the ministerial code of conduct or or, or other ethical questions from this position? I know that she's got the public popularity right now, and she, quite rightly, she's done a brilliant job, as I said, superb job. But the judgment, the lack of judgment, is mind-boggling. And her, her colleagues agree with that. It's sort of this <laughs> this real, really interesting ju- juxtaposition between a public that's trying to protect, uh, you know, in terms of their support for the leader, but internally in the media scrutiny, people are going, well, that doesn't... You know, that doesn't fly. Maria, Christina Keneally made a point uh, last weekend, not the weekend just gone, but the one before in a column she wrote for uh, the Sun-Herald, I think, that in some ways, you know, because this is, we've often seen the gendered treatment of of political leaders, but in some ways her gender is actually working for her in this, that people are actually, well, she was criticising Berejiklian for in some ways invoking this vulnerable female 
uh, trope or this idea that you know I was unlucky in love, I made some bad choices, I you know I, I I was associated with with the wrong guy who hasn't at some point done that, all of that sort of thing. Do you think there's a gendered dimension in this? The, the public? Oh yeah, of course there to... is. Yeah, of course there is. I mean, I I agree with with Kieran. I I do think. Um, it does make it very difficult for her to enforce um, discipline within her own ranks. Um, the, I mean, we, we have to remember, recall the context of New South Wales politics. Like, this is this is a jurisdiction where every two years we're, we're literally hearing stories about people accepting money in brown paper bags, like you know, like cartoon style <laughs> corruption. Yeah. Mm. So, so, and I think that's why um, her judgment is being called into such question because it's not like. It's a sort of um, environment in which you can kind of like a frog in a pot um, sort of slowly be acculturated because you don't really see the signs. It's, it's, she can't really make that argument. And it's quite likely that this sort of uh, narrative is, is a sort of slow burn because it, you're quite right when you sort of say that the, the salaciousness or the sort of human dimension of this story is really what hit the public imagination first. And, um, I think it is really kind of fascinating that, um, in this case, you know, she was seen to have picked a bad boyfriend and how that kind of compared with, um, Julia Gillard, who also had a bad boyfriend. And perhaps that is in part to do with the way it was framed by each individual woman. I mean, you know, you know, Julia Gillard never tried to make the argument that she'd had a bad boyfriend, made a bad decision, and possibly, we don't know, because she never really talked about it, was um, quite devastated by it. And, you know, and there's obviously some certain elements um, in the sort of chain of things that, that Gillard did in relation to that, setting up that slush fund, which was probably less than ideal in, in a similar case um, to Gladys. But I do think there is an important kind of discussion here to be had about, um, you know, how gender is treated and you know frankly like um equality really means that we just have as many mediocre women disappointing us in political life <laughs> as equality and as, mediocrity as yeah. men right and and so um you know and i think i think ultimately um instead of focusing on on her gender we should really be asking the, the fundamental questions like yes people and individuals have personal lives and we see in the business world all the time that you know it leads them to make poor decisions and in a lot of circumstances where it ultimately overlaps with their legal responsibilities if they're running a company or a union that they face the consequences and i don't ultimately see why this should be any different um because um you know, it's obviously a question of, of 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 judgment and the specifics of exactly what she's seen to be done in this case, and it's quite likely that she'd be fined, like that there won't be a criminal dimension, but that her moral authority as premier, as the chief, or the head of government, like will will become untenable because you know ultimately public life is a great privilege, a great honor, with great responsibilities and great power, but that also means. Higher standards than everyone else. Yeah, and you would that's think that's the trade-off. Yeah, that's right. And you would think those higher standards uh, um, go to being, as Kieran said, you know, absolutely hyper uh, alert to any suggestion, not just the suggestion of uh, of, of of corrupt behaviour or of uh, dishonest dealings, but the possibility of the appearance of it, mm. which is always very important in these things. The maintenance of public confidence. David is obviously, uh, you know, a, a critical thing here. And I wonder whether there's a bit of a split here between what you might call elite opinion and general opinion in the community. General opinion in the community does seem to be saying, I, you know, that, that like, if I can take it, make a, a horrible generalization, it seems to be operating on the basis of, I know Gladys. Mm. You know, we, how many premiers are just known by their first name? I know Gladys. She's, um, you know, she's she's like a prefect. You know, she's um, she's straight laced, little uh, nerdy. She, yeah, little yep. nerdy. Um, and uh, look, you know, I, I, she's she's had, she's had this sort of, um, you know, made this mistake in her personal life, and uh, and so they're seeing that human dimension. Whereas elite opinion is very much more conscious of the strictures that we've just been talking about, uh, the rules of the separation of powers, the the integrity and probity associated with high office, the need to always be hyper vigilant in 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 uh, maintaining separation, appropriate separation of things. 
Uh, I wonder if there's, this is the divide that's I think there's, uh, happening. One of the, the things that struck me as a sort of an ingenue in this space is that uh, there's a dissonance, isn't there, between what people think they know of Gladys and this sort of behavior. is like, whoa, hang on a second. That's not the yeah. Gladys we know. And that you know, sows confusion in a comfortable opinion that we might have of any given individual. I think the other thing that was very confusing for people was – and it was very stark – was on that day, uh, which was compulsive viewing uh, in ICAC, where um, there were questions being asked. Th- the answers were of a, a denial in nature. And then a tape, which was clearly refuting what she was, it was being played. And, and that, again, does not play into um, perhaps the individual as she wants to portray herself. I, I take very interestingly, and, and this has come up certainly, I guess, in, in medical circles as an elite circle, this business of, you know, gender. Obviously, gender in medicine is massive, absolutely massive. And uh, Keneally's point of, I think it was that, you know, we should not play that card if we are pursuing true equality um, has resonated a lot through my circle as well, um, that people who are in power should be held accountable according to their performance rather than gender. Um, so I wonder whether or not there is confusion within the ranks of both the elite and the common man, um, you know, exacerbated by this emerging in a unprecedented time. I don't even know where, I mean, it was really interesting to hear Kieran's points about um, maybe going by Christmas. Um, I wonder if anybody within her party or she herself is factoring in where COVID might be by then, because I think that would be a foolish thing to do to try to attempt to do that. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's a extraordinary insight. Somebody's peeled off a layer of skin um, yeah. for all of us to look at. Yes, well, I've worked with Kieran uh, Gilbert for a, a long time and I've learned to know that his uh, his judgments about these things can actually be uh, amazingly accurate. To He's got a spooky look about him. He, he, does. he does, yeah. <laughs> Looks like intel. Yeah. <laughs> now, Kieran, having just butted you up, um, <laughs> this um, – the other things I referred to, you know, the Cartier Watch story that's come out with Australia Post. Uh, we've had the, you know, sports rorts and things that were going on before that. Um, the Leppington Triangle land deal. I mean, all of this has sort of come washing back after a period in which politics and all of this this kind of stuff just seemed irrelevant and had had, had been kind of pushed away and we've seen extraordinary popularity uh, in, indeed you know uh, as we were just discussing Berejiklian, in 64% popularity even now even now is a function of this but do you think that we're going to see just like we saw trust and approval ratings go up do you think we're going to see uh, you know assuming we are we do come out of this pandemic it's in some sort of human shape and in some sort of human time scale do you think we'll see trust wash away again? It's a, it's a very good question. I, I think you're right to say that the, the trust has been enormous. Um, the sacrifices have been enormous as well. I know you've got loved ones in Melbourne. I speak to my sister with her four children um, every day and it's, and, uh, it's been very, very hard. Like it's mm. been brutal. I mean, and so I would say in some parts of the country that trust has started to ebb away. Certainly Melbourne and parts of Melbourne. Well, that, I, mean, that, I know there's the I stand with Dan crew, but there's a whole there's a whole cohort that is just saying, come on. Yeah. But but let's be clear about something here, because this is a really interesting point you make about Daniel Andrews. Today, as we record this, zero and zero. They're mm-hmm. the two numbers for today. Zero new infections, zero deaths overnight in the last 24 From hours. From a medical perspective, that's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, you say what you like about the culture of the environment or the economics. Medically, that's an extraordinary feat. Now, this is mm. the day after he decided to pause, perhaps only for a day or two, what mm. we don't know yet, but we, he decided to pause on, you know, the next stage of significant release of, yeah. of restrictions. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this. Uh, we, we all are. I mean, as, as my son said to me, you know, just about everyone in Victoria has, has, has become a pundit. You mm-hmm. know, they all spend all their time not just thinking about what the numbers could be, but thinking about what that then means in political terms, what that then means in terms of, you know, the health advice that will be taken up by the government and so forth. And, and that's a really interesting process in itself, just to see that level of community engagement. But it's going to be interesting to see the politics of this as well, because Clearly, the the, um, the Victorian government has been under assault now. It's under assault, as you say, from a significant section of its own electorate. 
but it's also under a lot of assault from the feds. Senior liberals from Victoria, people like Josh Frydenberg, have, have, have been very unguarded now in terms of their direct criticism of, of the Andrews government. I'm wondering whether if it keeps going like this, that is that the success with manage, managing it down continues and the restrictions are lifted, given what we're seeing going on in the rest of the world, whether that might not actually play badly for the critics and for the Commonwealth. I guess it does depend a little bit on how structural and yeah. uh, severe the economic damage is in Victoria. Mm. But, yeah, what do, what do you think? Like David said, this is an amazing Fees and he's the medical expert, not me. But I just look at the numbers in, internationally. I've not seen a case where they've done this mm-hmm. before. But I hope that the premier now, because there's the other side, the, the mental health side, which is massive. It's huge. Mm. I mean, kids have lost three quarters of the year of school. Young teenagers not being able to just do what they do, play footy every weekend. I mean, those mental health and societal things are huge. They're huge. And I think the single-mindedness of Daniel Andrews has been successful on that COVID front. I don't know what I don't know whether you know the economic toll and the broader health toll, what it's going to be like. As you said, we don't know how that's going to transpire. But I think just for the good of his people, he he, he needs to start saying, okay, let's let's start reopening because the whole principle to start was suppress not to eradicate, suppress, give your health systems enough time to deal with it. Well, they've had a lot of time now. So mm. on this very issue, I, I think, like, just on pure political terms, Dan Andrews is is a fascinating politician. So here is someone who is fronting the, the media every day for, for more than 100 days and is, broadly speaking, still in charge of this narrative. Like, why is it that they haven't been able to open up? Like, isn't this a bureaucratic story? Isn't this the fact that they don't have a contact tracing system that they must trust? Why is that not the thing we're talking about? Like, that goes to his political skill. The, the, that is not the centre focus, pushing pushing the government on, okay, so you've learnt about contact tracing from New South Wales. How long is it going to take you to set up these bureaucratic structures? Um, you know, because obviously the problem in Victoria is that it's about community transition and it's not about hotel quarantine. And the fact that he is still in control of this narrative, that it's actually about these other sort of issues, whereas it seems to me that whether or not the 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 public bureaucracy, the health bureaucracy can actually manage a crisis in the way the New South Wales system can seems to be the core issue, which we don't talk about. Now, David, I'm going to come to you and get get your response to that because that's a very interesting point. Let's just take a very quick break there and we'll come back and you can take up the point Maria was making. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. Now, just before the break, Maria was making a, an interesting point about contact tracing and New South, and Victoria in particular. Um, David, uh, your response? Uh, look, I mean, I think there are definitely differences between the way uh, New South Wales does its business and Victoria does. Um, I think that one uh, – I – I'm also astonished at the way in which he has controlled the narrative. And I speak as somebody, you know, who having dealt with the man in the realms of pill testing and the like, I'm not a big stan uh, for Dan. Um, but his ability to control that narrative is extraordinary. And I wonder, and you know, I'm got far better qualified people to comment, uh, in the room with me. Has he even been 
ask the right questions. Um, there seems to be uh, within the sort of the daily briefing, this assault on him um, at a almost personal level. Um, whereas you, you would imagine that if you were well informed um, about the medical situation as, as it evolved, there would be far better questions that you could ask of the man that would be uh, would result in far more telling answers. But they're not really landing a hit on him. They're focusing in on him as a person. Um, and it seems to be failing to leave a mark. He's coming up every day looking like I can take this for another 100 days if you need. Um, and I think the accountability, um, it, there's, there's such an intensity at trying to harm the guy rather than arrive at a resolution or some clarity about where the shortfall has been, that it's been a frenzy that's distracted from everybody. There are definitely medical issues that people want to know about. Masks, for example, um, and the provision of masks for healthcare providers. Why? What is going on at Box Hill Hospital? Um, there's been a, a lovely little... What is going on at Box Hill Hospital? Oh, there's been infections and, uh, and there's a, a, an interest in what's happening. Um, and so there are real issues to do with a, a lot of other things other than contact tra tracing, which are hardly touched upon. Um, there's a lot of grandstanding going on as well. Um, and, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of politics being played now. Absolutely. Because, because it's an be arena, isn't it? It's a coliseum. Well, out it's there. a fertile ground for it because yeah. strong policy. Particularly this kind of strong policy, of course, by definition, as, as Kieran was making the point, it creates a vast class of losers, you know, yeah. right across society, you know, like material losers in terms of income and, and, and health compromise and a range of other things. It's also not what they said they'd do. It's no, not what they said they'd do. I mean, the National what? Cabinet said that they would suppress, not, and then give people time to deal with it. And, mo and I'm not saying all epidemiologists, but a lot of them have been saying, okay, well, that's, Enough time now. We've yeah. You see, that's another great question to ask. So, why is it after such a long period of time uh, are the appropriate personal protective equipment not being issued to medical? Because we're the new reservoir. It's not aged care facilities anymore. Doctors and nurses are. You're the talking new about N95 masks. Yeah, absolutely. Why aren't they being issued now? With the, there was an abundance of time. You can kit out a country to go to war within six months. You can certainly kit out a country uh, with the protective equipment. So those are good questions. But they're not questions that you see being asked at you know, press conferences. You see these diatribes and opinion pieces, but there's, nobody appears to be asking the questions that one might expect to hear, for example, in a royal commission. What I think is uh, another interesting aspect of this from a kind of a political science point of view is the extent to which – Andrews is an anti-populist. I mean, we've got the sort of arch-populist mm. uh, uh, presidential campaign going on at the moment, um, and who knows how that's going to end. But you've got in in Andrews someone who is not not making not building support. He's losing support. The longer this goes on, the more it seems he's he's losing support. But I think the thing that, to be fair to him, that is uh, guiding him is this profound belief that what he is doing is in the best interests of the state. I mean, you can see this in the way he responds. Whether you actually agree with the conclusion he's making, whether you think it's gone too far for too long and so forth, those are all legitimate debates to have. But this is not a guy who's shilly-shallying or mincing his words in terms of his commitment to deliver this. Mm. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's staying in there. And I think one of the other things that's guiding him is that having – Having done this, having set this very strong policy in place, there's a recognition in both pure political terms but in also sort of social logistics terms that a third lockdown is just untenable. Yeah. Right? So you can't – the risk of, of an outbreak either shortly after this one, this lockdown has ended um, – and the need for further restrictions is such that uh, that outbreak would become unmanageable by definition. People just would not do it. So he's gone all in, hasn't he? He's playing he, poker. He's put he all, everything on the table. His attitude is: I'll stay there another week yeah. or another three weeks or whatever it is, rather than mm. take the risk that uh, six weeks from now we are going to have to try and do something again because there will be no political yeah. will it's left. A, yeah, and he's, you're right. He's been decisive. He's been, you know. That's been it all in, as you both rightly mm. point out. I think the failures 
and they're, they're they're pretty stark in my mind. I mean, this pandemic. I mean, not and it's not just the PPE for medical experts, as David was saying, but I think you can be you can be decisive, but also collaborative. And I don't think he's engaged enough at all, certainly with the business community. Mm. All of the peak bodies say you've ha- let us left us hung out to dry, that there's not enough consultation. Uh, and these are people who employ a lot of people and it's their businesses. Not everyone's a loaded, you know, um, entrepreneur that has dozens of pubs. The, 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 these are individuals and we've, we've seen the torment yeah. from, pe- from talking to the publicans Staff members, I, I did look. I, I don't begrudge the success on the COVID front. I hope they n- never have another case again, and mm. we see just a great crushing of it. But I just wish that he was a bit more collaborative when it comes to other parts of the society, which I think he's. That's been a big failure from what I from, and I've been monitoring pretty closely the last. Yeah, no, I, I know you have. But what can you can you go to that uh, question I had before though? Just specifically, what do you think would happen? It, like politically between the two tiers of government, state and federal, yeah. if this turns out, like if he releases the major, you know, the mother load of, of restrictions mm-hmm. are released on on, on um, Wednesday of this week, for example, Thursday of this week, uh, and the state is, you know, back in clover. I know it sounds, you know, ridiculous from here, but it's also... It's possible, yeah. It's possible. Mm-hmm. I th- I'll tell you one thing. I don't know the answer to that, but what I do know is that there are federal Labor people who are watching this yeah. very nervously because mm-hmm. they know that their federal election is up before the next Victorian election, and if people have baseball bats for the Labor brand, <laughs> it's not coming at Daniel Andrews first. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think this sort of goes back to the, the, the sort of fundamental kind of question here, right? Like there are obviously dimensions of leadership style and the way Dan Andrews likes to engage with information, people... Uh, groups and all of that. But we, we also know that there are just multiple governance problems. I mean, the fact that it's not clear who made a whole bunch of decisions. And I guess that's what I really wonder. Like, why is Dan Andrews sticking the course? Why is Dan Andrews making such a virtue of this? Is that because he is a hair-shirted martyr, mm. right? Or is it because he knows he doesn't have another option? That's what I want to know. <laughs> but that's, I guess, across all of the politics of this, you know, the the ability to evade important questions, the ability to decide that your employees will not be allowed to give evidence, for example, in the case of Ruby Princess. You know, this is not a unique jurisdictional issue. This has been a whole of government, federal and state, um, across the whole business of COVID. Um, and I think that's incredibly frustrating for many, certainly for all doctors involved in this space, and certainly for many members of the public. You know, why on earth? Why on earth do you get to say this group of people cannot give evidence? That's are, you, just, are you talking about border protection? Yeah, yeah, that's just rubbish, you know. And 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 if you if you as a country want to ensure that you do not keep making the same mistakes, you need to identify what mistakes were made. Um, and so, from a, a healthcare and and I dare say from a, an economic perspective, that sort of sequestration of information uh, does not a fine pandemic plan make. Well, let's pivot from there to just Queensland just quickly because uh, obviously there's a week to go in the election there. Uh, I don't know if anyone's got any insight as to who's going to win. Um, I think Labor's fractionally ahead. I mean, there's the general view that, you know, it's not a good time to be in opposition. Um, you know, government's... The whole uh, locky-uppie children curfew thing isn't going to wash very well uh, with many people, I don't think. Uh, yes, explain that. This is the, so uh, this the, is the Liberals' North Queensland policy. They want to apply mandatory curfews for 14- and 18-year-olds. Um, so if you're, a, I think, a 14-year-old, you're not allowed to be out any anywhere at all um, uh, on the streets after 8 or 10 and, and slightly later if you're uh, slightly older. And why um, do you say that? Won't, I, mean, I, I mean, it seems obnoxious to me, but why do you say that won't be popular? Be a, a lot of people say if you're 14 years old, you shouldn't be out on the street after 10 p.m. Well, what about going to a movie? A lot of them have jobs, you know, yeah. at the movies or McDonald's. Yeah. When you're 14. Oh, yeah. the, 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 have, have, when was the last time you went to McDonald's? How, how old was I, your I cashier? Don't, I don't go there. <laughs> so I, I think that is a s- strange, almost signalling type policy. Which well, I that's think, what it is. Yeah. yeah. So I think you know that that, that this is not the right time to play that. What, what I think is fascinating, though, when you just in the context and the frame that we've been talking about with Victoria and the, and the Commonwealth and so forth, is that 
The Libs are now trying to, or the LNP as it is up there, is trying to position itself as the best party to 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 manage the recovery. Mm. I mean, the the state's economy has been protected by its low infection rate and by the border being closed. Um, the uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Premier, has taken a huge amount of heat from outside of Queensland, but inside Queensland, it's broadly been popular. There are some tourist operators, of course, who would desperately love to have that border open. Um, and I must say, uh, I said on, on one of your programs, Kieran, you know, earlier on in this pandemic, that I thought it was impossible that she would take this, uh, the, you know, the border closure all the way to the election because of the economic damage it would do. I just, at the time, it seemed to me implausible. What I hadn't really um, factored in or come to understand, and I guess we've all learnt things along the way, but what I hadn't come to understand is the extent to which the population would be grateful for being protected from Victoria and and other jurisdictions and, you know, this sort of sense of, well, if we haven't got it, do not import it kind of thing. Um, and so we're seeing these restrictions, this border closure remain right up to the election. But the opposition is trying to position itself as they've sort of pivoted now from mm. stopping to complain about that and they're now on to look... We've got $100 billion of debt uh, and who's best to manage the recovery? That's that's what they seem to be arguing. Yeah, when when one hears, uh, you know, voters in reports and um, I've heard several on, on the radio in recent weeks using lines that the candidate is using in their re-election bid like she's kept us safe. Mm. And I've heard this several yeah, times right. from they, voters. They would love that. The government would love that. And to me, it's a really strong sign that the lines that we almost, um, you know, when you cover an election campaign, you're almost physically sick by the end of it because you've heard them so many times. <laughs> but but it means that it's also just starting to pierce the consciousness of the electorate. And yeah. I think they've done that very effectively. And being an incumbent and a competent one at – uh, a time of like uh, the pandemic, I, I can't see her losing. And going back to what David said about that curfew, to me, that looks like the ultimate Hail Mary yeah, yeah, <laughs> play, yeah. you know. And so they know they've got to win a few seats around Townsville mm. um, and North Queensland could, because Labor might pick up, believe it or not, one or two seats on the Gold Coast. Mm. Federally, that will never happen, but at the state level, because yeah. the numbers are, sh- are smaller, they have – from time to time, won um, the odd seat there. And so it's such that a could volatile happen. electorate. Queensland is just a more volatile, so volatile. place than, so volatile. than the rest of the country. Has that always been the case in Australia? Is that, or is that as long as I've been covering yeah. it, twenty years? And um, it's always struck me as a slightly different place. Isn't well, it? it's <laughs> much more regional than the other yeah. states, right? So it's got its population spread out over such a vast area. You've got concentrations of population, but you know, spread out over a large area. Mm. And it's also had this interesting sort of overlap between you know, with that sort of regional working class, which has been either Labor or Country Party in the old days. And there's a bit of an overlap, in, in, if you go right back, in in those voting patterns. And so you could have people going from what appears to be the left to the right and back again quite Well, this quite is a good lot. point because Hanson's vote in this election has been completely demolished. Yes, I've seen that. Because yeah. basically Palaszczuk has taken all her vote. Yeah. Because shut the borders. Well, that's what Hanson says. But yeah, no, that's what it. they exist for, that's shutting what, borders. Yeah. <laughs> so she's taken all the One Nation vote and said, like you're saying, from the yeah. right back to the left. Yeah. And, you know, in in Melbourne, or sorry, Victoria, a swing of 1.5% is big, is massive mm-hmm. in a seat. In Queensland, you have swings of fifteen percent. Yeah, and we've seen regularly. we've seen you know sort of situations where Labor would have out of the thirty federal seats or twenty nine federal seats in Queensland, you know they could have you know five or four or whatever. I mean they've got that sort of number now, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, like just get absolutely routed, and then another time Queensland can deliver victory. In fact, I remember mm. speaking to one of Shorten's people only a week before the election in twenty nineteen, and he was explaining the dire situation in Queensland and that was the moment at which that was the moment a week out from the election at which I started to think my prediction that Labor was going to win the election based on all the polls and everything else I started to think well unless Victoria does something really spectacular and that was what there was this big 
you know, hope in Labor that Victoria was going to swing. So Unless is, that happened, I mean, because it just looked like they were toast in Queensland. Is Queensland the Australian equivalent of Texas in the upcoming American? If, if Queensland swings, then the country swings in federal elections? Well, I definitely think if Texas swings, yeah. uh, Trump's gone. <laughs> and, and, and there is some talk that yeah. that could happen. Yeah, there's there a lot of seats up there. It's, it's 30 seats. The, the, federally, yeah. the electorate is very volatile. Mm. Um, one of the sort of long-term systemic trends um, that is happening in in the northern state is um, as Brisbane increasingly grows as a population centre, it's actually created the conditions for the Labor Party to kind of reassert the, the dominance in that state because, you know, they were literally the party of government up until uh, the Joe Bielke-Peterson era in the late uh, 50s, if I recall correctly, and then he was in power for about 30 years, much aided by a gerrymander. Mm, yeah. Um, and so and so, and that's, I guess, the LNP's real problem is that it's really the N in the LNP that really matters in Queensland. And it's the only state which is dominated by the National Party as opposed to the um That's a very good point. Liberal Party, yeah. yeah, which is sort of a, kind of an interesting argument for them to kind of make in terms of their economic credentials because, um, you know, like the sort of general heuristic I think people use for the National Party is not – Good economic discipline, right? <laughs> um, it's more likely to be money for the regions, which could be very attractive. I imagine is very attractive, yeah. but yeah, I think that narrative will function a little bit differently. And how will people in Brisbane think about the LNP running? The, the Courier Mail led with that the other day um, about um, this is the right party for. So you can you know where that segment is going. I agree with you. I think you know they may be barking up the wrong tree there. It's a really good point you make, Maria, though, and I'm glad you remind us of that because it's sort of easy to forget that the Liberal Party, back in the days when there was a separation between the Liberal Party and the National Party, but they were in coalition when they were in government, yeah. but it was the National Party that was the senior party yeah. by far. Yeah, the, and the Libs, and were, the Libs were, had these, you know, sort of toehold in metropolitan Brisbane, right. basically. They, had, they were deadlocked, 4-4, four, four, like between the moderates and the conservatives. They had eight members and four yeah. each and... They tore each other apart. Yeah, this is the Liberals, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And the Nats were a much bigger party and, and uh, yeah. See, that's yeah. why I come on this podcast, to learn Australian history. I don't know any of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you mentioned Texas. So let's yeah. just as a last, as a last, um, you know, uh, and we'll all regret this, I'm sure, but um, <laughs> as a last topic to discuss, let's think about the US election. I mean, uh, any thoughts, any tips? Uh, what do you Look, what do you I mean, the, the, if you were to go by the opinion polls, by the pollsters, it seems to be done. Um, but then, so it was before. Um, so, you know, there's been extraordinary attempts at voter suppression. Uh, and that's uh, an amazing thing in itself, isn't, isn't it? it? To think about it, remarkable. In, in supposedly the world's greatest democracy, ah. the best strategy uh, uh, you've got. Uh oh, no, hang on. Someone's but is it a democracy or yeah. is it a republic? Yeah. And that's, I think, a really interesting discourse that is uh, reemerging. Ireland's a republic. Come on, tell me what you mean by well, that. Well, as in, um, you know, like the the voting system in the United States was designed at the end of the 18th century. It was hmm. deliberately designed to protect from the demos because they were terrified of the average um, punter, and that is why it has so many veto players, and that is why the electoral college effectively doesn't reflect the popular yeah. um, vote. And a lot of people. Don't I mean there is not a commitment to democracy and and voting rights in in the United States. You can't possibly make that argument. Well, where, that was kind of the point yeah, I was making. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that, you know, it's supposedly a democracy, but the best strategy you've got is to stop people. So you can voting. be a democratic yeah. republic, but perhaps the, it's best to think of the United States as a republic rather yeah. than a democracy, yeah. right? that. given that they do not clearly value. Voting because they make it difficult. I shall be for taking that and using it with my left-wing elite colleagues uh, in conversation. I love that. Well, it, <laughs> it's also sort of ungovernable, as I said in the introduction. Mm. I mean, that's what we're seeing here. The states are, uh, you know, the, the, the federal the federal structure, as we know, places great you know limitations on on how things run and who who does what. But on top of that, there is just this whole culture that, well, the, you know, the Constitution sets out all of these individual rights in ways that our Constitution does not even, uh, you know, go there. Um, and there's a whole ethos of suspicion and, 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 and sort of opposition, really, to the very idea of government, certainly to the very idea of centralised government. So It really doesn't look like anyone's going to win this election. 
Um, you know, no matter how you play it out. And, you know, we do a little bit of work in game theory um, for mass casualty stuff. But there, there are people in the States looking at game theory and how this plays out, no matter what the result is. You know, excuse my language, it was a shit fest for the states. You know, yeah. if Trump gets back in, it's probably going to be bad. Um, mm. If Trump doesn't get back in, it's not certain where he's going to go or what he will do. Um, and the only outcome that is going to perhaps guarantee certainty would be a Biden landslide. And I don't think that's going to happen. And so, you know, it's, well, the numbers say that it could actually. Yeah, yeah but they, you know, they're not consulting with the bot farms in the Ukraine. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah, no, it's a, that's an interesting point, Kieran. I want to put this to you because you were at the inauguration of Barack Obama in two thousand and eight, which is an amazing thing in itself. Uh, is this the same America? I mean, give us some observations on. There's a smaller crowd at Obama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw the pictures. They were definitely. They were tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Trumps it was like it, seven guys. Yeah. 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 See, what it was freezing that day. So the, one of the coldest I've been in my life out there for hours. But anyway, it was an amazing moment in history. And to see where we've come now from. Tw- uh, tw- it was January 20, uh, 2009, it was the inauguration. It was. Uh, um, it's just hard to get your head around. Um, and just, you know, a couple of points to riff on after you, you, the issues you've been discussing. I was just reflecting when you spoke about the voting issues and the suppression issues. And you see these pictures of people lining up for 11 hours to vote. Mm. Uh, recently in the ACT election, it took me less than two minutes to walk in, get show my license, mark my five points, uh, boxes, and I, less than two minutes. And I thought... We do value voting. We yeah. do value democracy. Thank goodness we do. Um, and then you see these images and it's like that contrast is so huge. It's yeah. not even mandatory in the States, of course, as no. well. So this, this is a, a wish to vote yeah. rather that, than a requirement. And, yeah. And, and, and yeah, that's dem- one of the mechanisms by which vote, voting is suppressed, just mm. by making the number of voting places uh, re- relatively small mm. and by making it such an onerous process. Mm. It's in the interest, particularly in Republican states at the moment yeah. where they're, where they're just, uh, you know, because they don't have, I mean, this is the other thing people, f- you know, forget is that we have this, brilliant thing, this statutory body called the Australian Electoral Commission, which runs elections, the same election nationwide. It runs it. The the parties don't have any say in how it does so. Here we have, you know, what is it, 50 different electoral systems uh, with all kinds of different rules, all kinds of different provisions. We know about the, you know, the, the hanging chads disaster in, in, in 2000 because of the way that, you know, votes were cast in Florida. So it's yeah it's an, it's just it's, it's completely com- different for example it's between states not- and the management of mail-in ballots and to a, a, an extent well, Trump is US, correct even US post is a debacle as oh, well, well yeah. and and deliberately so and politicized yeah. I mean they've politicized the post for Christ's sake there's one really- individual I don't think would might have been mentioned on democracy sausage before but uh, LeBron James has been he has been spending- actually has he okay yeah. well I'm going to Jim Chalmers I'm going to well I'm going to follow up Jim with this because he's been spending I think well, it's definitely tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, him and other mm. like-minded sports people, Hollywood people and so on, to to boost the vote. So this counter-veiling yeah. uh, push for voter participation I think is interesting. A prediction, um, I, I think there's – I mean, I could be wrong. Let's talk on November 4, but because I was wrong in 2016 as a disclaimer, but – who wasn't? The, who, yeah, not many. I think there's been an overcorrection in the caution this time. Yeah, I do too. That's that's the thing. That's the thing I reckon's happening here. People are so burnt by 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 their prediction being wrong, and their prediction, in a sense, wasn't wrong. Three million more people voted mm. for Hillary, right? But they're so sort of shocked by having got it wrong that there's this kind of well, anything could happen. I, I don't. I'm not going to take any of the evidence seriously. You can sort of understand it psychologically, mm, sure. but. Yeah, and no, no, I certainly feel it myself as mm. you know, a pundit. It's mm. it's hard to be definitive on it, but I, I think my, uh, there's this sense I've got that there's an overcorrection. And if we're talking about Texas being in the, the ballpark and Trump's going to Nebraska mm. in the next week, and Texas and, is considered a purple state by many now. I think. Yeah. Um, well, if he gets that, I yeah. mean, it's all bets are off. And, yeah. and it's often you look to where the candidate goes to see what they're worried about. Yeah. If he's going to Nebraska, yeah. I mean, goodness me. Uh, look, I don't know. We, he might win. Trump might win. But at the moment, my Everything is telling me, my gut feeling is that, you know, you look at these numbers and the events of 2016, that this is an overcorrection. Biden should win. 
Well, we can only hope that he, he does actually win in a landslide because I think the absolute worst outcome mm. is a protracted set of legal disputes over... Which will be going to a Supreme Court for decision. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Supreme Court that has changed in... <laughs> in, in indeed, indeed. I mean, there has been um, some sort of analysis done that if you were to randomly discard um, 7% of the ballot in, I think it was Florida, that that would materially impact or perhaps actually a state like Michigan, sorry, where he's much more likely to do well, um, that that would materially affect the, the state right? and flip it from one to the other. And we, and there are like a bunch of structural things like the Democrats generally haven't been canvassing in person, whereas Republicans have. Um, Democrats are much more likely to vote by mail. Republicans are much more likely to vote in person. Um, so so like there's there's been a difference in kind of um, ground games and their, and their efficacy. And so I can kind of see why people are really um, nervous, but also just frankly like you know, he stays in office till January. Yeah, I know. Is- what sort of a mm-hmm. system is this? Is there any element of this system that isn't cockamamie, to use an American word? I mean, it is just Well, it's so just, it's, it's just, it's it's 250 mm. years old. I mean, how many yeah. people drive a 250-year-old car? Yeah. Like, you would just, you wouldn't design this system today. I think that's kind of the, the point. Um, and, uh, and, and, it, it, it's it's a system designed to stop people from being able to accumulate power and it ultimately functioned on people behaving well, right? You know, Republican civic yeah, virtues and yeah. norms and they've eroded all of that. And so now it's just like a knee with no cartilage. <laughs> yes. It's just yeah. really painful. Do you think that it will be repaired by a Biden presidency? No. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I think we could talk about Biden for some time and, and just the whole choice, but we won't do that now because we're right at time. Um, but it, it is it is an interesting thought uh, to leave on, David, the, just the, the whole selection of Biden. I read an interesting piece over the weekend, I think it was from Politico, talking about how Biden is perfect just because of all the things that he isn't. Mm. And it yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, it does make one nervous that they've got a 77-year-old candidate who – you know, let's be honest, just, doesn't just appear settle. to... Just settle. Just get married and settle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, I mean, anyway, let's let's uh, let's see how it goes. It's been an absolute uh, delight talking with you all today, Kieran Gilbert, David Caldercott, Maria Taflaga, as always. Uh, and um, thanks for being on Democracy Sausage. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'll be back later in the week with the Democracy Sausage Extra. Uh, and until then, it's bye from me and it's bye from these lovely people. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. 